This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Dallas Mavericks CEO Cynthia Marshall discusses her book, You've Been Chosen. She speaks about navigating the corporate world as a black woman and becoming the first black woman CEO of an NBA team. And to make sure that I do a really, really good job so that my colleagues and other people in leadership can be, you know, will be okay with picking somebody that looks like me because they are very well aware uh, that we can do the job as women, as black people, as black women, people of color, that all of us, white people, we can all uh, accomplish uh, great things and we can all be strong leaders and place in powerful positions. She's interviewed by Washington Post Sports Enterprise reporter Michael Lee. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, my first question is, what made you decide to tell your story? Well, I have been uh, asked for about 10 years to tell uh, my cancer story. And every time I give a speech or something, people said, oh, you need to write a book. And I said, I only want to talk about my cancer stuff uh, because people have been asking for my cancer journal uh, ever since I had chemotherapy when I got diagnosed with colon cancer. So uh, one of my assistants finally said, we need to really turn this into a book. And one thing led to another. And I wrote it so that I can uh, hopefully inspire people and give them hope. And then the publishers wanted to go beyond just my cancer story so we could inspire an even broader audience. So uh, I finally decided this was the time to do it because cancer is so prevalent and so many things are going on in the world. And I just decided I wanted to be a part of the solution to give people hope uh, and faith that they can make it through the hard times. And a lot of people are going through hard times. Yeah, one thing that stands out to me, though, from reading the book is that Cancer isn't the only thing that you've had to overcome. I mean, you don't hold back on the many challenges you've faced in your life. Why did you decide to share so many intimate details about your upbringing and even your personal struggles away from work? Okay, so I did not want to do that. As I said, I started out <laughs> just I started out just wanting to take my cancer journal mm-hmm. and publish it so that if somebody's going through cancer or they know have a loved one that's going through cancer, uh, they can say, okay, this is what happened to her in round six. This is what happened, blah, blah. Well, as I'm telling the publishers my story, they said there's no way you can actually that you could have gotten through cancer the way you got through it with optimism, with the faith that you had if there if there wasn't a backstory. So they spent time just talking to me and asked me about my life and uh, getting the backstory because they figured I had been chosen prior to just being chosen for cancer, that I had been chosen for other things, other adversity in my life. And they thought that that contributed to how I was able to get through uh, cancer. And so uh, when they sent it back to me and all these stories were in there, at first I didn't want to do it. But you know what? I, I give a lot of speeches and I tell these stories uh, because I am just truly uh, on a mission. Honestly, I believe the Lord has chosen me to inspire people uh, to tell the stories. I believe that uh, I have been through a lot of tests and you can't have a testimony without the test. 
And so in, in order for me to testify to somebody and to tell them to be encouraged and to tell them the Lord is going to bring them through it, whatever that looks like, uh, I need to share some of my story uh, in order to have credibility. And so I have, there's no shame at all. I will tell the intimate details because I do believe, uh, as my mother said, when I got cancer, it's all for his glory. Speaking of your mother, um, tell me about Carolyn Gardner. I mean, you describe her as a saint, an angel, and a prayer warrior. And um, if I were to meet her for the first time, what would my impression be of, be of her? And you would love Carolyn Gardner. So she is absolutely amazing. Uh, she is a strong woman of faith. So everything she does, her words, her actions, they're all rooted uh, in Scripture. Uh, she is all about service. Uh, believe it or not, because I'm kind of loud, not probably not kind of, <laughs> probably not kind of, but uh, she is a soft-spoken woman until that voice of power comes out. And so you know when the Lord, that anointing starts uh, rising up. Uh, but she's all about service. She is all about helping people and on a true mission to make the world better. She loves her children, her grandchildren, her family, uh, actually her community. I got my community service spirit uh, from my mother. And she is a woman of optimism. She, she taught us a long time ago that with God, all things are possible. And so she is, she's all about the Bible. She's all about Jesus. And how much do you credit your success of just having a mother like that and just with her character and her heart? Oh, my goodness, all of it, all of it. I am truly uh, my mother's daughter. I'm not, I'm not nearly <laughs> the wonderful, saintly woman that she is, uh, not, by any, not by any means. Though. I mean, I, I have an alter ego named Janelle, okay? My mother probably does not have an alter ego. Uh, but, she gave me, but she gave me a foundation uh, in Scripture. She gave me uh, a foundation uh, of optimism and definitely a foundation of faith. And, and not, not only did she give me that, I watched her. I watched her go through a lot. Uh, to raise her children. I, I saw her go through uh, domestic violence. I saw her working two and three jobs, so I know what hard work looks like. Uh, so she modeled for me. Uh, she modeled for me what it is to be a strong woman of grace and grit. Yeah. I mean, on, on the flip side, obviously, there was there was your father, a man whose dark side you shared on numerous occasions in the book. But what was it like growing up at home and having that kind of saint and then, you know, the opposite of that? Um, and and in, what, in what ways did you sort of balance having that sort of parental situation? Well, I actually think my mother and her faith had the uh, stronger presence in my life because I actually would describe uh, my childhood as a good childhood. Uh, I went to uh, good schools, and, and that was just because of our public education system and the fact that zip code didn't matter. So I got a good education. I was involved in activities. Uh, my mother had a strong influence on me. My dad actually was very... Uh, strong on education as well. I mean, they left Birmingham, Alabama when I was three months old uh, because they didn't want their kids uh, to grow up in the Jim Crow segregated South uh, and, 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 and thought we'd have um, uh, a real shot at uh, a better life not being segregated. And, and so uh, both of my parents uh, stressed education, uh, but my mother was all about uh, just really uh, pouring into us. And so I think she had a, a stronger presence. He obviously... Uh, had uh, had his own issues, his own struggles, and you know was abusive, and 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 what I would describe as a as a mean man. Uh, there were also qualities uh, that I think around education uh, that helped uh, with my foundation as well. Yeah. Um, now, now you mentioned you know growing up in uh, Easter Hill, 
Um, yes, yes, how, Richmond, California, 94804. <laughs> um, how, how would you describe that community and um, what, what was it like growing up there and, and, and just um, how did it shape who you became? Uh, Richmond is a, it's a loving community. It always has been. Uh, the Easter Hill Public Housing Projects, where I grew up, had all the elements of uh, family community and then all other elements uh, around uh, poverty. Uh, so the things you would associate with poverty, uh, they were happening in our neighborhood. Uh, but my mother always taught us it's not where you live, it's how you live. Uh, I mean, those words ring uh, in my mind every day that she taught us that our zip code didn't matter. And sometimes we'd have to walk through uh, things in our neighborhood uh, and keep our head down and just have our little backpacks on getting back to the house. Uh, but uh, there were some uh, there were some great people right there in the projects with us uh, trying to make it and trying to uh, get out. So I describe it as a loving place uh, with all the elements of poverty that you would associate with it. Yeah, a lot of times when, you know, people's life go sideways, they, they use the excuse that they're a product of their environment that, you know, they didn't see hope. And so all these negative images are just they influenced them in, in what they became. What did you see there in terms of, you know, your imagination or in real life that made you believe that you could become what you eventually did? Well, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, again, I had parents focused on education. I had teachers uh, who poured into me. I distinctly remember uh, my uh, sixth grade teacher. I actually skipped the fifth grade. Actually, I guess I was in the fifth grade for a couple of days. And so <laughs> Ms. Uh, Patricia Rosen was my sixth grade teacher. And so she had uh, something every month where she would name student of the month. And so I often you know, was the student of the month. And I remember one time in particular, she took me, uh, and I grew up in Richmond, so across the bay of San Francisco, and she took me to San Francisco for a day, you know, student of the month Saturday, and took me to Zim's Hamburgers. I had never had a big medium rare hamburger. And she took me to see My Fair Lady at this big theater with all these uh, big curtains and, you know, it was beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it, and then going across the bridge. And so she exposed me to some things. And that's, that's just one example of teachers and uh, community people that exposed me to things that normally I probably would not have otherwise been exposed to. And through those experiences, uh, through running track and being able to go and visit other places and uh, going to different towns, I was able to uh, see things that uh, not everybody was able uh, to see. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that was too uncommon at the time in my neighborhood. Uh, the sense of community was uh, tremendous. And people would just um, uh, come alongside uh, my folks and uh, do big things for us, which was awesome. So I was able to see some things uh, that I normally wouldn't have seen. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of um, gri- gripping stories that you that you share in, in this book. And um, a lot of early on, there, you know, a lot of them, you know, centered around just your father, and one about the time where you first saw a gun pointed at you and he saved you, the next time yes. when he actually pointed a gun at you. Um, how did you just grapple with just his complexity and the fact that at one moment he was there to save you and the next moment he was endangering you? Like, how did you deal with having someone who's seemed to have so much going on in that regard? Yeah, I think it goes back to my mom and her uh, desire and her actions, actually, that supported her desires to create as much of a stable environment as she could 
uh, for her children. And, and I know to this day there are some things that she kept away from us, even though there are some things, obviously, uh, that happened to us and that uh, we saw. And so we were taught, you know, we were taught not to disrespect uh, our father or, you know, uh, dishonor him in any way. Uh, but we were also taught that there were some things that really we didn't have to deal with. So when my mom got a divorce when I was 15 years old, that was definitely a message that some of the things that we had seen uh, weren't acceptable and she wasn't going to, uh, uh, she wasn't going to tolerate it anymore. I mean, he, he was my father and, you know, people go through all kinds of things in their life. I mean, bad things do happen to good people. And we had some bad incidents that uh, occurred in our lives. But I think going to church, being involved in activities, having my mother there as an anchor, uh, truly tipped the scales in the opposite direction uh, for all of us and, and, and kept us on a positive uh, uh, path uh, to, uh, to, to do some good things uh, for me and all, all of my siblings. Now, obviously, um, you have a lot of firsts. Um, you were the first black valedictorian of your high school. Yeah, uh, you're one of the first black cheerleaders at UC Berkeley. Now you're the first black woman CEO in the NBA. Um, when you start scratching off a lot of these firsts, what, what, what you and you look back at what you've been able to accomplish, what stands out? Okay, so uh, first of all, I, I you know most of the times when you're first, you, you don't know you're first because you just either try out or like when I tried out to be a cheerleader, I didn't know that. I was one of the first. I assume that, I mean, people told me I was the first, but I think there was probably another one or two uh, before me, and I keep researching it. But you don't know that there are few people or no people uh, that, that uh, have done this, that look like you before. And the only time I ever set out to be the first was when I was senior class president, uh, because I was at my sister's graduation, high school graduation as a freshman, and I saw these two white guys on stage and asked my mom, if a black girl could be on that stage. And so then I got one of my buddies to run for student body president when we were juniors. And so two black girls ended up on that stage four years ago. So that was the only time I set up to do it. But every time after that, it happened. Uh, when I became the uh, first black female CEO in the NBA, I don't think Mark Cuban was trying to make history. I mean, he was really just trying to make a difference uh, for his team. And so I didn't even know I was first until a reporter actually uh uh, told me that. And it was actually kind of sad because in these days and times, you shouldn't be first, maybe back when I was growing up, but but not now. And so what I try to do with it is just use it as encouragement to make sure that I'm not the last, to make sure that I am working on the pipeline of the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and to make sure that I do a really, really good job so that my colleagues and other people in leadership can be, you know, will be okay with picking somebody that looks like me because they are very well aware uh, that we can do the job as women, as black people, as black women, people of color, that all of us, white people, we can all uh, accomplish uh, great things and we can all be strong leaders and placed in powerful positions. So I take it as a real challenge to myself to make sure that I'm not uh, last, that I'm first, but not the last. Yeah, no, I, I, deal with sports a lot and, and uh you know all, you know every, every level i've covered nba for a long time but um i remember having a conversation with dusty baker the manager of the houston astros once and we were talking about just being a manager and being a leader and he said one of the issues that he faced you know as as a black manager in, the, in major league baseball was that a number of his players had never dealt with a black authority figure never dealt with a black person in a position a leadership position 
And so it was unusual for them to take orders from him. And I can only imagine what that was like, you know, as a black person, but also as a woman and when you're in control. And what was that like just sort of dealing with, you know, as you rose up, you know, in your profession, especially at AT&T, um, you know, where there were maybe people who looked at you and just like, why is she telling me what to do? That is, that is so true. And first of all, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Dusty Baker. I know him. I uh, have so much respect for him. I actually saw him a couple of months ago. I got a chance to throw out the first pitch at a Texas Rangers game, and we oh, were wow. playing against his team. And so my daughter and I got a chance to go and visit with him and just talk uh, San Francisco Bay Area talk. So it was great. I have oh, so course, much respect for him. I mean, he's blazed uh, so many, so many trails. And you're actually, you're absolutely right. Uh, there are still to this day in 2022, uh, people who have never worked for a woman or never reported to a person of color, uh, let alone a black woman. And and sometimes I can sense it. I know when it's when it's going on. And in fact, that's one of the things I ask in interviews of my leadership team uh, members when I'm interviewing for a job. I ask people if they have experience working in diverse cultures, if they have supervised and led diverse people, if they have actually been managed and supervised by diverse people, uh, because sometimes that is different for people. And I like to address it uh, head on because, you know, we're here. We're here. We are qualified. We're in powerful positions. And yes, you have some people who just refuse to do it. You have some people who think like when Mark Cuban brought me in, that it was some PR stunt and I wouldn't last 90 days uh, because I was a woman and quote unquote, uh, didn't know uh, basketball and all that. Uh, So it's very, very real. But as long as you know that you're put in that position for a reason and that you're hired for a reason and that you do bring something to the party. And like the book said, you've been chosen uh, to be there. uh, It'll be all right. But you have to address it head on. It is very, very real, sometimes surprising, sometimes surprising. uh, But 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 it's real. Yeah, um, I know a lot of times people um, are suspicious of your rise. And I know you mentioned that. You're treated as if you're untrustworthy or dishonest. Do you have any yes. specific examples of when you had encountered that, and, and how did you overcome that and still push through and just say, you know what, um, I'm not going to allow them to define me? Right. You know, several times, and 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 I know I know women and 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 people of color who have experienced this. I've experienced it uh, where there's a double standard, where sometimes you know you get more audits uh, than anybody else. Or you are told, oh, uh, this is not acceptable, but you know it is and you know the rules allow it and you know somebody told you that it was okay, but then all of a sudden for you, uh, it's an issue. Or somebody files a complaint that, you know, you just know it's crazy, but it has to be looked into, but then all of a sudden you're you're not being talked to uh, and the process isn't being followed. Uh, So there are times where uh, the rules just seem to apply differently uh, to uh, uh, to people who look like me, and and it, it's it's very real, and you have to just you work your way through it. And I often say, you know, you just have to be, you know, above the law. You you know, people will come looking, and you just have to make sure they don't find anything uh, when they come looking. And not everybody has to live like that in the workplace on a daily basis, uh, but uh, some of us do, and, and it's okay as long as we're operating by a set of values. And by a code of conduct, you can't stop the people from looking. You can't pray away the double standard. It just exists. 
And so you make sure you perform, you deliver the results, and you give them no ammunition when they come looking. Yeah. Um, like, so you've obviously had a ton of success, um, and you've ascended at the heights a lot of black people, women, uh, especially black women, haven't reached. Um, but you're also frank that it came at a cost. Um, looking back on your career and just what you've done, um, what did you gain from your ambition and your uh, hopes and then what if anything was lost in that pursuit? You know, it's interesting you use the word ambition because I actually wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, describe myself as ambitious and not that okay. it's a bad word. I don't think it's a bad no, word yeah. at all. I don't think it's a bad word. I just don't think it describes me. I mm-hmm. turned down at least four, uh, four promotions in my 36 year career at AT&T. Uh, because uh, I had two questions I always asked when I got a job, and I had 15 th- different jobs at AT&T, 13,088 days. And in those days, <laughs> I always asked the Lord, Lord, what is it that you want me to do in this job? Because I, I believe I was always chosen for a job for a different reason. There was something particular that I brought to the table uh, and, uh, that I need to accomplish. And then I would always ask the Lord, who is it that you want me to touch? So I always felt, I mean, from the time I started working Uh, in a professional space at 21 years old, I always felt I was on some kind of uh, marketplace mission, if you will. And so um, I I responded to what the Lord put in front of me and the jobs that that I had. Uh, I don't think I rose at a cost. In fact, often when I got promoted, I I wasn't expecting it. In fact, I I never pursued a promotion in my career. Uh, But the Lord continued to elevate me because he had more people uh, that he wanted me to touch and things that he wanted me uh, to do. And so uh, if you ask me what cost, uh, what did it cost me? I don't think it cost me anything. Uh, I did have four, si- four second trimester miscarriages that had nothing to do with work. Uh, my body had some kind of physical condition and they never quite figured out uh, what it was. I think they got close. Uh, then I had a daughter who was born prematurely who died at six and a half months old. Uh, that had nothing to do uh, with work and being promoted. I had a husband with brain damage and they said he'd never walk and talk again. And we prayed him uh, back to get health. In fact, I took off work to go to a church convention. Uh, so that had nothing to do uh, with work. So I don't think, I think my adversity at work uh, had to do uh, with work and dealings with some issues uh, uh, there, but I had a great career as well. So things I went through, a lot of people go through them. And so uh, those, uh, the bad days in my career are they pale in comparison uh, to the good days? So I don't think uh, I don't think I paid a cost. I don't think I paid a price at all uh, for climbing. In fact, I think uh, I was blessed, and a lot of people were blessed because I was able to rise uh, and um, help uh, change the shade of who was in the room. Help people appreciate what women bring to the table. Help people appreciate that we all. Um, should be uh, respected, that every voice matters and everybody belongs, which is our workplace promise uh, at the Mavs. Uh, so I think just the opposite. I think uh, my, uh, my promotions and my rise, if you will, uh, didn't come at a cost or a price at all. But the only thing that truly came at a price or a cost in my life uh, is salvation and Jesus dying on the cross. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, you just mentioned it, and I was going to get to it later, but since you brought it up, I wanted to talk about just the fact that, um, you know, it was really heartbreaking uh, when you explained your journey that you and your husband, Kenny, took towards becoming parents. And I know a lot of families can relate to those challenges, but most 
sort of deal with that agony in private. Um, what do you hope people who read this book can gain from your openness about your struggles and just also just the sadness that came? Because um, I know that knowing how, you know, you sort of a goal setter and you can, you know, if you want it, you go after you get it. And I'm sure that was probably one of the more difficult things is just not know that you weren't in control in that situation. Michael, you are so right. Um, the pain of losing my daughter is like a pain I've, I've never felt uh, before or since. And also the pain of losing control. And, and you're right. Up until then, you know, I had a plan. I was going to graduate from college, start working, have a family in two years, I mean, get married two years after college, then start you know, a family after that. So everything was going to plan until I start having all of these second trimester miscarriages. And the Lord let me know that he has a plan. So it was very painful. And what I hope comes out of uh, telling the story, actually I experienced it yesterday with someone telling me about their miscarriages and how reading my book has given them hope uh, that they will have a family one day. And maybe the Lord has a different way to make that family, uh, but they have hope. They also got inspiration from me sharing my pain because they're going through uh, pain and they felt like they had permission uh, to go through it and that it was actually normal uh, from reading uh, my story and reading about me being laid out on my staircase for two whole days uh, while, while my husband was visiting his folks because I literally couldn't get up the stairs after we had the funeral and I just had to let it all out. And he found me in the same position uh, when he got home. Uh, but what he did was he reached his hand down to pull me up. And that's what I want people to also uh, see in that book, that you might be the one laid out on that staircase and trust and believe that somebody is going to come and pull you up. Or you might be the one that sees somebody laying down there and you have to extend that hand. And so that's what the book is all about. Uh, we've been chosen. We've been chosen to go through the adversity that we go through. Uh, we've been chosen to be there for other people. And the Lord truly has a plan. And so we have to trust uh, that plan and know that we're chosen uh, to kind of live out what he wants us to live out the way he wants us to live it out. And yes, sometimes it is very painful. I often say sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. It is truly a train. Okay, bad things do happen uh, to good people, but we have to to trust what it says in Jeremiah 29 and 11, that there is a plan for our lives, and that plan is to give us hope and a future to prosper and not harm us. And I believe that in my soul. I'm, I know I got that uh, from, my, from my mom. And so that's why I share these stories, because I want somebody to know that, yes, if you've had miscarriages, Yes, you can keep trying. It's okay. I kept trying for 10 years. I said, I am doing this. I am going to have uh, this baby. And I actually said something very stupid to somebody one day when they talked about adoption. I, and just honestly, it's so stupid. I shouldn't even repeat it. But I told this colleague of mine, I said, there's no way you can love kids that somebody else had like they're your own kids. And so then when we sent out the, the postcard, when we adopted our first son, and we mm -hmm. sent out the postcard and said, Anthony adopted us, and we were all smiling and so happy, uh, that same colleague called me. It was years later. And he said, okay, tell me about all that nonsense you were talking. I said, boy, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> because it was so ridiculous, but I didn't know that. And that's why I share this story. I'm hoping I can save somebody uh, 10 years worth of uh, pain and have them really get in touch 
with the plan that the Lord has for our lives. I so many times in my life, uh, Michael, I heard I heard the plan. I, I knew that something else was supposed to be going on. And I just kept saying, I got to do it my way. I have a plan. And then at some point you have to lit, you have to yield. You have to yield to the fact that you've been chosen and you've been chosen for a certain path and you've been chosen to also show, you know, also show up for other people. And so finally I have yielded. And so I'm hoping I can give people faith and optimism and the permission to go ahead and yield. Yeah. Um, now you obviously went on to adopt uh, four children. Um, my babies. Those are my babies. <laughs> um, in, in what ways um, did motherhood enhance your life? Oh, Lord, that is like the most, uh, that's the best part of my life, okay? That is the best part of my life. It was worth uh, the 10 years of struggle. I love, love, love the fact that I have to, I don't have a choice. I have to show up uh, for these people. I have to show up for my babies. They are relying on me. The Lord gave me these kids, and for as long as I'm on this earth, I am blessed and I have the pleasure to be able to go through uh, life with them. Uh, there is just no better feeling than motherhood. They love me as a mother. You know, my, uh, my family gave me uh, a crown uh, years ago and a bell. They gave me a bell that I ring on Mother's Day. I start ringing it at midnight and I ring it until 1159. And so they can just serve the queen of the castle. I love being <laughs> the queen of the castle. Those are my babies. I love them. There's just no better feeling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, um, one, one thing you mentioned in your book, too, is that, you know, there was a, po- a point where, you know, your dad was out of your life and you shut him out and stopped communicating with him. And it seemed that you were done with him, but there was something that he left for you <laughs> yes, that you didn't yes. you weren't aware of uh, yes. coming. As, and it came in the form of um, what took his life eventually, which was colon cancer. And then obviously you wound up with stage three colon cancer and that's the central focus of the book. Um, but just what was it like the day that you found out that you were going to be in a fight where you had a 25% chance of making it? Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, when I had, you know, I had symptoms, but I didn't recognize them as symptoms of colon cancer. And then when I ended up getting a colonoscopy, it wasn't because, I thought that something was wrong. It was because uh, I was in this corporate athlete class uh, at work. Thank goodness for a great HR program. And they said, pick one thing you're going to do to either enhance your physical, mental, or spiritual health. And so I was off the charts great on the mental, off the charts great on the spiritual. Had already started eating a little better around physical. But I remembered I had a slip on my, a referral slip from my doctor on my nightstand to go and get a colonoscopy. And I, I have to be honest. I had never planned on doing anything uh, with that referral slip. But when I kept thinking about, okay, what can I do around physical? And it came to me. I said, okay, fine. I'll get a colonoscopy. And it still was until the end of that year. I had an accountability buddy, uh, my good friend, Frank Jules, New York guy. He used to call me every day saying, you got that thing done. You got that thing done. And so finally, my last day of 50. So technically, I guess, in compliance to get a colonoscopy at 50. And some people need to get it much earlier. But my last day at 50, I got a colonoscopy. And on my 51st birthday is when I got a call from the doctor saying, uh, you need to get to a surgeon. And so when I finally got the news, uh, I had the surgery and I got the news the day before New Year's Eve 
uh, that uh, I had stage three colon cancer, one lymph node away from uh, stage four and would need to immediately have chemotherapy and all that. Uh, I was in shock and I called my mom and I was crying. I just, you know, there's nothing like it. And I can still hear those words today. When I answered the phone, the doctor told me who he was. He apologized for calling me back so late and it was over the holidays. And he said, I hope you're sitting down. I have news. It's bad and it's significant you have stage three colon cancer. And when he started telling me, it was the first time in my life I had what I think was an out-of-body experience because I just actually, at some point, thought he was talking to somebody else. There was no way somebody was telling me I had cancer. And it actually wasn't until a month or so later when I was talking to my oncologist, getting ready for chemo, and he had asked me a few times about my family history. And so then, and I just said, you know, cancer doesn't run in my family. And then just for some reason, one day I was sitting in his office and he said, OK, tell me about your mom and dad. And we were talking and I saw my dad passed last year. Well, 2009. And he says, oh, what did he die from? And I just froze. I said, wow, colon cancer. So you're right. I didn't want to have anything to do with him at that point in my life. But he definitely left something for me and we were definitely attached and they did all the genetic studies and all that. And so um, genetics plays a part in it, diet. I mean, there's so many things that can lead to colon cancer, uh, but the big thing is to have a colonoscopy. And so that's what I'm hoping will also come out of this book, that more people will just stop, assess their health and go and have a colonoscopy, even if they're not 50, because the the ages are getting younger and younger um, in terms of people getting colon cancer. But just stop and evaluate your health and do what you need to do, uh, especially uh, when it comes to uh, getting a colonoscopy. Colon cancer is so preventable. So that's part of also why I tell this story is to help somebody go and get that colonoscopy. And if they have polyps, get them out and get on with their lives without chemo. Well, I'm actually uh, headed to get a colonoscopy pretty soon myself. So reading this uh, made it clear that I definitely should. Um, You have to do it. You have to do it. One thing you mentioned in the book, and you have a lot of inspirational quotes, but you always say you never ask why. It's it's what will I do with what I've been given? And how did you get that that perspective? And how did that perspective help you manage with that 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 fight um, with with chemo and then through with cancer? Oh, I love that question. I I I think it came uh, that attitude and that mindset has come from a few different things. Uh, Number one, watching my mother go through a lot in life and never question why, but always uh, believe that the Lord uh, was going to take care of us. And there was always something better uh, on the other side. So I didn't grow up around uh, someone who questioned why Uh, I grew up uh, and I was raised by a woman who always said the Lord had a plan and it would be better. So that's just how I grew up. And then when I look over my life and I think about different things that have happened, I always got up every time I was either knocked down or fell down on my own because, you know, sometimes you fall down on your own. You make bad decisions and, you know, I make mistakes. Uh, But there's always somebody to get me up and then there's always a learning uh, that comes from it. And so eventually you'll understand the why. Sometimes you won't, uh, but sometimes you'll get a learning out of it and you go, okay, and that's something that's going to help you. Uh, for the next leg of the journey. Uh, I have learned that some of this stuff is a setup. Uh, some of the things I went to went through leading up to cancer was a setup to help me actually get to the point uh, where I could survive cancer. Uh, some of the things that happened in my life just around job moves and creating communities and relationships, 
all that led up, all that led up uh, to me being able to make it through it. So I had, and then of course, I'm rooted in, in the Bible. I try my best, you know, Lord knows I'm not a saint by any means, trust me. Uh, but I try to uh, internalize uh, the word of God and to know that all things work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, so I believe everything uh, is for his good and I just have to get through it, trust him, rely on community, rely on people, rely on my faith. And then sometimes I'll understand why and sometimes I won't. But no, yeah, no your, reason your, to ask it. Yeah, your, your faith obviously comes through in the book and just in, even this conversation and just the fact that you uh, dropped Romans 8.28 in the conversation <laughs> Uh, it took me back to like when I first started um, uh, my my career. I had some challenges early on, and and one of my mentors gave me a little card to put in my wallet, and it was a smiley face on one end. And it was Romans eight twenty eight on the other, and it helped yes. me deal with some hard times. And um, I was just yes. um, out, and and I, I do wonder though, as anybody who you know is uh is a spiritual can understand there there's always a time at least, or maybe there isn't, but for some. There's a moment where you find yourself doubting God or doubting mm-hmm. if he's there, if he's real. And I want to know if that ever happened to you. And if so, what brought you back to believing? Yes, that's exactly how I was when after we buried our six month old daughter and I got back home and I was headed and my husband had just decided, you know, we had had six months in the hospital. Then we buried her. It was just too much. He wanted to go and see his uh, parents for the weekend. I did not want to go with him. I just wanted to go to bed. And as I was walking up those stairs and I saw her little nursery, I saw the special K because her name was Carolyn with a K. My mom is Carolyn and then my husband is Kenneth. So Carolyn with a K and I saw those special K cereal boxes and her, the, the Minnie Mouse room all set up, the whole, her, her, nurse, her nursery that she never saw. And I was going up the stairs and to my left, I saw that nursery and I just like literally just fell out on the stairs. My husband had just pulled out of the driveway. When he got back, so that was a Friday evening after her funeral. He got back that Sunday evening. I was still laying there in the same place. I cried for 48 hours. I laid out on those stairs. I just didn't understand this. I just didn't understand why I had gone through these four second trimester miscarriages. I didn't think there was anything in the middle. I thought I would either have a fifth second trimester miscarriage or full-term pregnancy. And all of a sudden, I'm in this middle space where I actually have this kid who they said would live for two days, this princess, and then it was six and a half months, and then he took her. I couldn't process that. I couldn't understand that. And I just laid there and cried, just saying, okay, what's next, Lord? I don't understand this. I'm not going to be able to get through this. The pain is too much. And I can still remember my husband coming back in. He didn't say anything. He looked at me and he had that look as if to say, have you been laying here the whole time? But he could tell I had the same clothes on. And then it was just that hand. It was just that hand that got me up. And so we have to be that hand for people sometime. And it's okay to lay there and not understand some things we will never understand but sometimes it, yes, it's what happens, but sometimes it's also about, it's more important how you respond to what happens. And I got up, he got me up and we got on with the plan that the Lord had for us in terms of how the Lord had planned to make uh, our family. I finally had to let go of this desire that I had, that I was going to make my family. That's not how this works. 
Your husband sounds like an amazing guy. And I suppose anybody who gets a shout out from Maya Angelou, um, it would probably be pretty special. <laughs> Was that cool? Was that cool that, or what? He has never cool. let me forget that. Okay, I've been we've been married. It'll be forty years next April, and that brother has never let me forget that Maya Angelou <laughs> gave him a standing ovation because he did uh, give up his career uh, to stay at home with our children. And he told the reporter one time. I actually couldn't even believe he said it when I read it. I said, "Who told you to say that?" Uh, she asked him. Uh, she asked him, "How was it being a stay-at-home dad to give up his career?" And he said, a real man will do whatever it takes for his family to thrive. When I asked him if he said that, he said, yeah, I don't know where that came from. But he said, that's, and it, it was hard for him. It was hard for yeah. him to do that. Yeah. Uh, but he said, whatever it took for his family to thrive and to, uh, you know, he poured into his family. And it wasn't always easy for him. I mean, he had, you know, his own issues about how he dealt with that. And he can write his own book one day and he can tell his own stories. And then he can talk about his fabulous wife who just stuck with him through thick and thin. So uh, the Lord has truly been good to us. He's taken us through some things and we've come out. Okay. Um, what do you admire most about him and why was he the right man for you to take this journey in life with? Uh, he was the right man. Cause the Lord truly put us together and um, the Lord orchestrated that whole thing. You know, I had put him on hold when I was in college, then called him back when I graduated and all that. Okay. So he, he, he was there, but he said he was engaged. It was a whole long story. But anyway, so he's my husband now. And so I know the Lord uh, uh, put us together. And what I love the most about him is he is an easygoing, uh, low-key guy who is very much in tune with his own uh, opportunities uh, to do better. And so he never tries to cover uh, up anything like that. Uh, in our marriage. And, and I love that, that he is just real and he is just out there. And what you see uh, is what you get. And so that's what I think I love uh, the most about him. I mean, he's, he's, he's my husband and he is ride or die for his children, his nieces, his nephews. I mean, he is the super dad. He is the super uncle. Uh, sometime even when he's driving me crazy. He is there. He is there uh, for uh, the kids. And I admire that. I think our young people uh, need to have uh, people in their life, but especially men. And our children of our black kids need to, I think, have black men in their lives who they know are just there uh, for them, that they can put their own uh, stuff aside to be there for uh, these kids. And so he's always that hand uh, that will reach out, even if his hand is shaking. He will still uh, reach out. That's what I love about him. I, I, I must say that I found myself laughing when I read the words, I will call you when I graduate. <laughs> Don't Which play. Is, I'm focused. <laughs> I'm was, on a mission, I know, Duke. I, I, I see. It, but I was, I mean, it's pretty incredible just that one, that you were able to put him on hold, uh, not just not just the date, but just a call uh, until you completed your studies at Berkeley. Yes. And I was shocked when I saw that. But um, like I was like, uh, a young man's supposed to wait for four years. Like, uh, <laughs> um, well, it, he it, didn't it, wait. Obviously, he was engaged. Okay, so but, he, <laughs> but the yeah, brother yeah, didn't yeah. know I was the brother didn't know I was coming back. And and people ask me all the time what happened to her. I said, well, I don't really know what happened to her, but to her. But I know what he said. He said when he hung up the phone, she asked who was that, and he said, oh, that was you know one of my girlfriends from high school and all that. And she said, that was Cynthia, right? And he said, yes. Yeah. She says, 
you need to go to the party. Because I told him my mom was having me a party. And she said, no, you need to go. So she told him that he needed to come to the party. So I guess she knew, too, that uh, wow. that was, that was going to be my husband. Mm-hmm. And apparently she's happy and she's happily married and all that. So it all worked out. I didn't break them up, okay? I didn't break them no, up. No, no, no. I, I mean, I understand <laughs> you, guys, you guys had history. So uh, but just the fact that, you know, um, that connection that you all made even before, uh, you know, in high school was that strong that uh, – that even after you know, four years of separation that you you came back together, I think that's that's a pretty incredible story. Yeah, he used to go by and see my mom and tell my mm-hmm. mom, he goes, I know, you know, Cynthia's at, you know, she's in college and all that. Because, you know, he had moved to San Francisco State to go to college across the bridge. So he surprised me when he transferred yeah. schools. And I surprised him when I told him, <laughs> not now, boyfriend. So he used to go by and see my mom and tell my mom that he was going to marry me. And that, you know, at some point that, you know, he'd be the son-in-law. So just don't worry about it. So he was right. He he wanted a church girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like I said, it was great that, that it worked out. Um, uh, I wanted to get back to uh, your, your fight with cancer, because obviously mm-hmm. um, it's one of the more strong. It's the strongest theme of, of the book. You mentioned yes. your, your journal. Um, you kept yes. a, a journal that you shared with all your supporters and, and your village. Um, and um, what was it like to kind of chronicle those steps? Um you know, in writing and, uh, and how much was that kind of a, a release for you through that process to sort of kind of, you know, let, let it all out and, and, and with your words. You know, it was, it was amazing. And, and you allude to it. it. It was therapeutic. Uh, it was, uh, taxing though. Uh, and, and it started because so many people around the country, uh, called once they found out about the diagnosis and they, you know, they wanted status and all that. And so one of my assistants, uh, decided, you know what, it would be great just to go to this Caring Bridge site and just post updates. And I had never heard of uh, the Caring Bridge site, which is, it's an amazing tool. And so we decided, and so the first time I had chemo, I actually couldn't write uh, the first journal posting. So you probably saw it in the book where Rob Smith, a good friend of mine, one of our regulatory directors at the time at AT&T, uh, he wrote the first posting because I was too sick uh, to do it. And then I thought, okay, what have I committed to? Because we had told people they could get updates, you know, (laughs) periodically. And my plan, because, you know, I always have a plan, right? My plan was to post every round of chemo. Well, of course, the first round I couldn't even post. And then I said, okay, I've got to do this. I just got to do this because I said I was going to do it. And I want people to get it from me. I want them to feel it. And I'm going to give them the good, the great, the bad, and the ugly. Now, honestly, not really thinking there would be a whole lot of bad and ugly because a lot of stuff that I heard about chemo, I truly didn't think was going to happen to me. Okay. And it turned out that I did a post every round and I really did post good, great, bad and ugly. And I just opened up and let people know exactly what I was going through. So when they went to that posting to get a status, they got a real status. And what was great is people would comment and I would get thousands of comments back that actually would encourage me. So on those nine really bad, you know, nonsense like days where I just felt horrible, I could just lay down and I could read some of those, uh, fall asleep, read some more. And it just actually encouraged my spirit and my soul. And you probably noticed that towards the end there, some of those journal postings got longer and longer because yes. it was therapeutic. I was like, I'm telling the story. I mean, I'm, I'm into it now. And so it was a great way to communicate, but also a great way to express what I was thinking and then to get encouragement back. Yeah. I noticed um, one thing that you mentioned is that chemo is a beast. And oh. I wanted, 
you to tell me about Winston and his little brother Willis. <laughs> how how okay. it felt to leave them behind. I love it. Okay, so Winston was my chemo pump. So I had a, you know, I had a port. So they put in a port to infuse the uh, the chemo cocktail. And so my port was Willis, and Willis was in my arm. Chemo, uh, Winston was my pump. So I'd go in to have chemo, and then I would leave the chemo uh, suite that I named the clubhouse because we're all in there fighting for our lives. So I'd leave the clubhouse with Winston on me, this pump, for 48 hours. And I named my pump Winston from the movie How Stella Got Her Groove Back. So I don't know if you've ever seen it with Tay Diggs. Uh, okay, so you've seen the movie. And so Angela Bassett. So, okay, so my, my pump was Winston. I said, this thing better give me my groove back. As, as, as tough as it is to process all of this, uh, this chemo cocktail and all of this medicine, this is supposed to make me better. And so I named it Winston. And so my husband would laugh because he said, not only do I have to sleep in the bed, with, Winston has to sleep with us. He makes noise because, you know, you could hear the medicine, you know, going through. And so when it was all said and done, of course, I gave Winston back because Winston costs a lot of money and you have to turn Winston back in. But I kept my port. And I told my doctor when he surgically, you know, took out the port, I said, I need you to do whatever you need to do with the sterilizer and all that and put it in a cup because I am taking this to the Bahamas and we are throwing this uh, in the ocean to have a party. I can <laughs> throw the pump. And so, so we took Willis to the Bahamas and we had a big party. It was beautiful. People who didn't even know me uh, were on the boat uh, singing with us and singing I Will Survive. And we had a big party and we threw uh, Willis overboard once I got the uh, news that I was cancer free. So, yes, I named all my equipment. So Winston, <laughs> ga- Winston gave me my groove back. Willis helped out. Winston went back to do more good work. Willis is living peacefully out in the ocean. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit also about just um, early on in your career, um, you had to make some adjustments to your appearance to look more corporate or look more acceptable. Um, and I wanted to know, like, when you started to find comfort in being your true authentic self, um, you you mentioned that, you know, there was one point where you were about to get a promotion and you rejected it and they wanted you to change your name to be Cindy. And you're like, no, I'm sent. And Hello. I want to know what does it mean to be sent? And, and when did you, like I said, find comfort in being your authentic self? Okay, I, I love that question, too, and I, I will let you know you can't see it, though, but I actually have on hot pink future boots right now uh, because that, that is my statement that I don't always have to be in black and navy blue shoes. That's okay, but I can do other stuff, too. Uh, so it's a statement that I try to make periodically. Uh, when I first started working for uh, our company, like fresh out of college, 21 years old, and I had a boss, a, a well-intentioned boss. Let me, let me preface this. My boss's boss, very well-intentioned, uh, told me to take down my braids and get rid of my red shoes uh, because they were too ethnic, uh, not professional, and she wanted me to have a professional look. I was on this fast-track management program, and she was so uh, dialed into making sure I was successful. And in her mind, that was not a successful professional look. So her intentions were very well-meaning. I went home that night uh, with my oldest sister, Cassandra, and my mom, and we stayed up all night taking my braids out. And then my sister worked at the 579 little boutique store, uh, got me some little outfits and some, some black shoes. I'll never forget it. And so I went back to work 
uh, looking the way she wanted me to look. Again, well-intentioned. And so throughout my career, I pretty much had that corporate look. Every now and then, I'd come out with some splashy colors or something. Uh, but 19 years later, when I got the call uh, saying I was being promoted to officer, which, of course, is the highest level you can go uh, in a corporation, uh, that offer came with some caveats. Uh, the boss told me, my boss told me that she wanted me to start wearing more white and that she had left a magazine. She was also well-intentioned that she had left a magazine on my desk with these, all these black people with white on and the women had short hair. So she wanted me to get a haircut uh, because she just thought I'd look better with this uh, short hair that, you know, I guess I, it was just too much, you know, the hair that I had. And then she also told me she wanted me to stop laughing so loud. I couldn't be so happy. She wanted me to be a little more stoic. And she just had this laundry list. But where she kind of like crossed the line is when she told me and that I needed to stop saying words like blessed and needed to use words like lucky. And then she told me I couldn't be sent. I needed to be Cindy or Cynthia because nobody knows what a scent is. Between having to change my name, which, of course, people had called me Cindy and Cynthia because for years people just wouldn't call me Scent because they weren't used to it. Uh, and so others who are named Cynthia, it was okay for them to be Cindy. But I was Cynthia. I was Scent, but that wasn't okay. And it's just because people weren't familiar with it and they weren't trying to get familiar with it. But most of the people who I grew up with who looked like me, not all of them, but most of them, named Cynthia are called Scent. But people don't want to appreciate that. So I just finally said, you know what? When I came here... I gave up the red shoes and the braids. I think I'm just going to have to put a stop to this. And I was as sincere as I can be. I asked her to help me figure out how to turn down the promotion. And I wasn't even, I wasn't even mad at her. I mean, I thought, okay, like, you've gone too far. And I'm not, you know, I was, at a, I was a VP already. I had risen high, higher than I ever thought I would rise in the corporation. So I was well beyond that director level that I came in on for our fast track program. I had a fabulous job, fabulous team, fabulous stakeholders. I was enjoying life, but I wanted to keep my VP job. Okay. Cause like, you know, my family's depending on me. Others are depending on me. And so I asked her to help me figure out how to say no, that I thought this was, I was giving up too much. She said, she said she agreed with me and she just agreed that probably the officer thing wasn't for me and that she would, uh, She'd break the news to the, the, the chairman and her boss in a way that uh, would keep my job intact. That's all I was worried about when, that, when I hung up that phone. My husband was in the background saying he had a barber. I could go get the haircut. He can go get me some white. I'm like, uh-uh, no, enough, enough. I can't let people fundamentally change who I am. And that's the message I've given to all of my kids. When they fundamentally try to change who you are, you have to take a stand and we'll back you up. And so I took a stand and then I got a call uh, just a few minutes after we hung up and the person on the other end, her boss's boss said sent and he emphasized the T. Yeah. He said, I want to start this all over again. I just heard what happened. And he was wonderful. He was wonderful. He told me that he had been in my office. He had seen this cross that I had, uh, this thing I had on the wall with the cross on it that said, Lord, there's nothing that can happen today that you and I can't handle. He said, I see that. I saw that big rock on your deck because he had been in our San Francisco office. Uh, a few months prior to that, he said, I saw that big rock on your desk that says I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. He said, I know who you are. I know you're loud. I know you love the people. He went on and on and on. 
He's saying that's the person who has delivered results. That's the person who's been successful. And that's the person who we want to be an officer. And I'll never forget at our first officers conference, it was so new to me. I had never been into this kind of environment in, in, in this environment. And Ed Whitaker himself, who was the chairman of AT&T at the time, met me at the door and he was in tears. And he, and he says, girl, you're one of 110. And there were 110 officers. He said, it's a long way from the Easter Hill Public Housing Projects in Richmond, California. He said, go in, contribute, take your rightful place in that room. And then he opened the door. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And that just gave me a true freedom after that to be who I am. And by the time I actually made it to AT&T to be the president of AT&T North Carolina, when I made it there, I just started telling my story and opening up and just the authentic me came out and she is never going back in. (laughs) <laughs> so that is the long response yeah. to your question. That's how it happened. Yeah. So you just have to slice that up and cut it up and take out what you need. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. Um, you, you're now working, um, you know, as, a, as with the Dallas Mavericks. And in your book, you mentioned you mentioned once going to a Warriors game. But I want to know what your level of NBA fandom was before you decided <laughs> to work for Mark Cuban, who you had never heard of before he reached out to you. I know. And people don't believe that, which I mean. I can't help what they believe. I had never heard of him, so you could judge me. Uh, and, and I was a basketball fan, okay? But, okay, so, so this story is already out. So I will tell you that I had on Golden State Warrior sweats and a Cal Berkeley baseball cap when Mark Cuban called me, okay? And I was living in Dallas, but I was diehard Deb Nation, okay? Because I was loyal to my home team. That's who I grew up with. So I was loyal to the Giants, loyal to the 49ers, loyal to the Warriors. I mean, just... I grew up loyal, and so I was a big basketball fan. I paid attention to the Warriors and some other teams, right? I was working like a dog in Dallas uh, when I came, uh, when I was moved there uh, by our chairman to AT&T in Dallas. So I, I just, I was working. And so I hadn't been to a Mavs game. I didn't know Mark Cuban when he called me. And oh my goodness, was I missing out? Because to go to a Mavs game, is quite an experience if you have not. Have you been to a Mavs game? Of course. I've, I've been there for the finals and everything, so yeah. Okay. I mean, to be at a Mavs game, there's just no experience like that. So I obviously have been missing out, okay? But I just <laughs> hadn't been there. I'm raising my kids and all that. I hadn't been there. And so I didn't know Mark Cuban uh, when he called me. And when he told me about his situation and then when he was, um, when he was just sharing with me what he needed and he, he needed a leader, uh, and I told him, well, I don't know the business of basketball. He told me, don't worry about that. He could teach me the business of basketball, that he needed a leader. My name had, uh, you know, come up and he needed someone to come in. And basically his mandate was to transform the culture. I knew I couldn't do it by myself, brought in some amazing uh, women with me, coupled with the amazing people who work at the Mavs. Yes, we did have to have uh, quite a few leadership changes and diversify our leadership team. I laid out a vision and a set of values, put together a 100-day plan, and I don't take credit uh, for our transformation. And we're not perfect. I think we're still on a journey uh, for a great place to work, uh, but, I, but we're not a bad place to work. We're not the place um, that we were in March 2018. And several people, I mean, probably a good 150 people, have had their hands in uh, making us a much better place uh, to work. So it's been uh, quite a journey. I didn't know him and he didn't know me. And I actually think it's great that he didn't know me because it's not like Mark was trying to call the friend or call somebody to, you know, help him cover up or anything. He truly, truly uh, was sincere about 
creating a great place to work for his employees. And so we have been on uh, that journey and we are still on that journey. We still, you know, we work through workplace stuff every day. Uh, There are some people who are no longer there, who don't like the fact that they're no longer there. And every now and then something will pop up from them. Uh, So we still work through our opportunities and our challenges, Uh, but we are on a journey for a great place to work. Yeah, no, um, I guess we're wrapping up now, but I I remember, um, you know, I covered the NBA for 20 years. And so um, I was first introduced to you when you took over uh, with the Mavericks. But I noticed that in this book, you don't really go into what you've done um, and what you're doing right now. And I'm wondering, are you setting us up for the next book? No, I'm not. Because (laughs) this really was, this has been on my heart for 10, 11 years to tell this cancer story and encourage people. And the publishers, of course, and I think they did a great job, wanted these other stories mixed in to give people more insight into my life. Uh, And to, if if the goal was to really give people hope, and optimism and encouragement, they, we accomplished that, I think, from what I'm hearing with some of these other stories as well. Uh, but the cancer journey is uh, the centerpiece and to get people to be there for each other and to show how God and great people always show up and to tell people to get a colonoscopy and all that. The rest of it, I always said I would never write uh, a corporate book. Uh, I thought about writing one years ago, ironically called Rebound, okay? Uh, just about corporate America and my life and always being able to rebound and get back up. And then I just said, I don't want to. If, if I write another one, it's probably about motherhood and that kind of stuff. I don't, you know, we got the NBA's in- Inclusion Leadership Award. They've only given it twice. We got it both times, okay, the last uh, few years. And so I feel good about what we've accomplished, but but we did it. It's a story for all of us to tell at the Mavs, and we tell it, and we try to help other teams and other organizations. Uh, I, I'm just one of those vessels. I, I don't ever plan on writing uh, a book about my time at the Mavs or, frankly, my time at at and I don't even think people want to hear about that. I am trying to do God's work and help to inspire people uh, with how he has blessed me and how he's picked me up uh, through my life. Well, Sint, thank you so much uh, for your time and for writing this book and sharing uh, your life story. Um, I appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. Thank you for reading it, and thank you for taking some time to also encourage people. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.